4. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at the first four verses. We'll be focusing on chapters 3 and 4. The Bible says there, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, uh, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I, might, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now look up at chapter 3 and verse 1, and we get sort of the thrust of this half of the book there. It says there, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So, we uh, looked at chapters 1 and 2 last week. We'll look at chapters 3 and 4 this week. But the title of this study in Colossians is A Church That Lives Counter to the Culture. Let's pray. Lord, help the message, uh, the Bible study night to make sense. I pray, Lord, we would even deeper and more greatly appreciate this book uh, that you had Paul pen to the church of uh, Colossae. And God, I pray that um, we would leave tonight determined to make what we know about our faith be applicable in our lives, be present in our lives and our daily actions, and that Christianity not just be a theory uh, that we listen to on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it be something that we practice. So, uh, Lord, help us to um, take these truths and do our best to live them. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we said uh, last week in our um, uh, when we started the series, that Paul wrote this letter from prison. He was in prison a lot. I um, speculated that maybe God put Paul in prison so that he would write, because Paul was always on the move, and he wasn't going to write unless God put him in a spot where that was all he could do. I don't know if that's the case or not, but uh, I'm, le- I'm personally left to wonder that. I'm sure others have wondered the same. Uh, Paul did not start this church. Paul never even visited this church. But Paul was a big deal, he was a big name, and uh, Paul was greatly respected by the people within the church, and his buddy Epaphras, who is from Colossae, did start the church, pastored the church, and spoke well of Paul, Paul spoke well of him, and so uh, Epaphras visited Paul in prison, told Paul about uh, many wonderful things that the church was doing, and then shared with him some of the pressures that the church was facing And feeling, and then so Paul wrote and praised the church and then addressed some of these pressures that the church was facing. Now, we didn't look at the pressures last week, but this week we're going to look intently at some of the pressures that this church was facing from the culture around them, both the secular culture around them and the religious culture around them. How many of you would agree that there is a secular culture around all of us that is not in line with the Bible. How many would agree with that? And how many would say there is a religious culture in Connecticut that is not in line with the Bible, that at times is pushed on us, right? Uh, I meet people out all the time and they say, I'm Catholic. I say, okay, I'm not. <laughs> um, and uh, um, uh, you can get your heart turned around too, amen? Uh, no, I don't, I'm not quite that forward with them, but there is that strong Italian Catholic 
push. And then there's also a, a new evangelical push where, hey, let's just talk about the love of Jesus and let's not talk about sin. And that's not healthy either. And that's not really in line with the Bible. That's so we face both of those here. But we're going to look at that more in detail here in a moment. So just to quickly review last week, we'll put the first three points there uh, on the screen. And then the blanks are already filled in on the back of your uh, outline there. But we looked at Paul's encouragement to the church uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, down through verse number 10. But we, we talked about his praise of the church, their faith, their hope, their love. We spent quite a bit of time last week talking about how that we're to love everybody. We're to love everybody. And it uh, doesn't matter if they look like you. doesn't matter if they have as much money as you do or they uh, have less or more than you. We're, we're just to treat everyone the same. We're not to be a respecter of persons. We're to love everyone um, uh, the same. So, But this church was doing that. They had a strong faith. They had strong hope. They had strong love. And Paul praised them for that. We talked about his prayer for the church. He prayed that God would give them wisdom to know God's will, that they would be worthy in their walk uh, that they had been called to and then worthy of the work that had been placed in front of them to do. So Paul's encouragement to the church. And then we talked about Paul's exaltation of Christ, the creator. We said that in the uh, Greek language there, chapter one, verses 15 through 20 is a poem we, we, we can't tell that looking at the English translation, but 115 through 20 is a poem that exalts Christ as a creator. Stanza 1 talks about him creating the heavens and the earth of the material. Stanza 2 talks about him creating the new creation, and that being the church. So Christ created the church. Church is not just a an option for you if you're saved. The church is mandatory if you're saved. Not because I said so, but because your Savior said so. He saved you. He created the church. He says, you are to be part of church. Now, some of you here tonight say, but pastor, I would be uh, uh, more involved in church, but church isn't perfect. It has problems. And that just, you know, that goes without saying. Raise your hand if you're a sinner. If your hand's not raised, you're lying. You're double sinning right now. Both of my hands are up. Guess what? This church isn't perfect. This church is a long way from perfect. Its pastor's not perfect. Its pastoral staff's not perfect. Its deacons are really not. No, I'm kidding. Um, we uh, we got a long ways to go, don't we? He's still working on me. Is he still working on you? So don't say, I can't go to that church because it's not perfect. Find one that, 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 that teaches the Bible the right way. And, you know, love covers a multitude of sins, does it not? But uh, church was, was Christ's idea. He created it. He loved it. And uh, one day when we get to heaven, he'll wash it with the water of the word at the judgment seat. And then the church will be perfect. But Paul's exaltation of Christ's creator and really a lot of the book can be brought back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Number three, we looked at Paul's explanation of his own suffering. Paul's explanation of his own suffering. And uh, I, I was uh, talking with Brother Okai Sunday morning and found out uh, that he's been doing a Bible study in his Sunday school class, which, by the way, is leading the contest, the fall program. Good job, Brother Jake. Your class is working hard. Uh, but um, he's been teaching on this very topic He's been teaching on this very topic in Sunday school class about why Christians suffer. Why Christians suffer. 
nobody wants to suffer. If I said, uh, hey, in this, on the, in, in the table, on the table in the lobby, there's a sign-up sheet to suffer. Go put your name down and you'll start your trial tomorrow. I don't think anybody's going to go write their name down, are they? Right? Some of you feel like someone else wrote your name down. Now, the, the sheet might get filled up with people writing other people's names down. But it's not, no one's going to go write their own name down. And Paul said, listen, I, I am suffering for you. For you. I, I am willing to take such a stand against the pressures of, uh, of, of, of the religious culture that's wrong and the sin cultures that, wrong, that are wrong. I'm willing to stand against them to the place where I am beaten and thrown in prison. And I'm hoping that my suffering will encourage you to stand strong in your faith. Stand strong in your faith. Paul said also by my suffering, not only do I get to be encouragement to you, but I also, uh, I also get to be associated with Christ because he suffered with me. So Paul explained his suffering. Now let's jump in and, uh, and, and that gets us through the end of chapter 2 there. Uh, or rather gets us, no it doesn't. We're going to look a little bit more at chapter 2 here. Number 4, notice Paul's exhortation to focus on Christ. Paul's exhortation. He's going to really exhort them. He's going to really push them to, hey, take your eyes off the cultural pressures and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's what you need to be looking at. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Notice before Paul launches into the problems that the, uh, the pressures of the culture, Paul spends quite a bit of time talking to them about Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. It says, And ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. I have underlined received and walk. Ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That's great. Walk ye in Him. It's not enough just to get saved, folks. You can get saved, and that will get you to heaven. But if you're going to really stand up and live counter to the culture... The sinful culture around you that's taking our country down a very ugly and nasty road and taking the world down a very ugly, nasty road. You're going to have to do more than just trust Him. You're going to have to walk in Him. Look at verse uh, number 7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, uh, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. There's a lot there. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you. Through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiment of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, uh, and ye are compl- uh, and ye are complete in him, or complete in yeah, complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What that means is that the knife has been taken and the sin has been cut away from your heart. And you are free from living under habitual, sinful, a sinful lifestyle. You have been spiritually circumcised by who? Look at the rest of the verse. And putting off the body of the sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. By who? By Christ. Paul's saying, focus on Jesus. Focus on walking in Him. Focus on being rooted in Him. Built up in Him. Established in your faith. Abounding with thanksgiving. Uh, and then put your guard up against others who are going to come and try to attack your uh, spiritual foundation. And then uh, he says, "Be uh, you've had your hearts circumcised by Him. Look at verse 12. 
buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So you've been buried with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ. That's the baptism process there. You, uh, you, you lay down the old life and you come up and you decide you're going to walk in a new life. And so before Paul is going to t- attack the cultural problems of that day, both the religious culture and the worldly culture, he's reminding them, You've got to focus on Christ. And the old, uh, the old example here is a, uh, a, a, a teller at a, at a bank. She can study, uh, she can study to try to learn all the new counterfeit techniques. Or you can lock that teller, that man or woman, in a room with, uh, with, with a real authentic thing for hours at a time and have her count it and look at it. And then after a while, it doesn't matter what counterfeit technique is used, that teller will be able to spot a counterfeit immediately. So, listen, here's what I've learned. The more I walk with Christ, the quicker I'm able to identify when the culture's wrong. I'm not, I have no fear of a Jehovah's Witness coming and knocking on my door. Because I have spent time reading my Bible. And they're going to try to sell me some bill of lies. I, I've studied the real deal. The counterfeit's not going to trip me up. And I know Christians that want to do nothing but study cults. Be careful about that. Study the Bible. The cults, will, the cults will figure themselves out. I'm not saying there's never any value in that, but, but don't become obsessed with it. So Paul is saying here, focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your focus uh, uh, primarily on Him. Uh, so uh, Paul's exhortation, uh, his push, he's exhorting them, he's encouraging them to focus on Christ. Number five, the, uh, the church's enemies that wanted compromise. The church's enemies that wanted compromise. Remember here, their pastor had gone to Paul. Epaphras had gone to Paul and said, Hey, Paul, uh, the church of Colossae, they're doing well. The church I'm pastoring is doing well. But there are some on the edges who are beginning to feel very pressured by uh, some things. And so Paul's going to address these here. Letter A, notice traditionalism or the Old Testament law. Traditionalism or the Old Testament law. You could say about the... Uh, those in the Judaism religion that going back prior to Christ coming and completing the law, that back when the Old Testament law was in, 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 in act and they were following that, that even then the leaders of the, uh, the Judaism religion, they were putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. They were putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. What do I mean by that? Yes. The Torah or the law was to be followed. And yes, that was in place. And yes, that was the standard prior to Jesus coming and completing the law. But the purpose of the Torah, even back then, was not to be worshipped. The purpose of the Torah was not to have every I dotted and every T cross and to persecute people that didn't hold to it. The purpose of the Torah was to show everybody prior that, hey, you're not worthy and you need the coming Messiah and you need to believe in the coming Messiah. 
Now, had the emphasis been put on the right syllable, had the emphasis been put on the right thing back in the Old Testament by the leaders of, of the Judaism religion, when the Messiah came on the scene, they would have all celebrated it and there wouldn't have been this, uh, this um, uh, uh, misleading, misguiding once the church age came around. But nonetheless, here you have the church era. You have those that are holding to the old way and they're holding to the old way even though it doesn't it make any sense and they're trying to force it on everyone now let me just quickly say this here um, i didn't have this in my notes but i feel like it's important to those of you that have been in at white oak baptist church or in a fundamental independent baptist church for a long 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 time uh 20 30 40 years be careful about bowing down at the altar of traditionalism just because our church has done it a particular way For years, if it isn't in the Bible, then we shouldn't worship it. We shouldn't worship it. Do you all understand that the culture changes? And sometimes those changes are not necessarily sinful. All right? Um, I'm a young pastor. This is the core of the church on Wednesday night. So I, I enjoy talking about these type of things with you all. I talk to my deacons about this uh, sometimes. I talk to my staff about it quite a bit. Uh, but I feel like sometimes it's good to kind of push open a little bit and talk to uh, a little bit more of the church. Um, we look at the Catholic Church and we say, man, they are filled with traditions and rituals. And they worship their traditions, traditions and rituals. That is a true statement. When, a, when a, a, I have Catholics ask me all the time, what's the difference between a Catholic and a Baptist? What I, what I generally say is the Catholics put a, a high priority on traditions and rituals first, and the Bible is buried somewhere behind that. Baptists have their traditions and rituals, but we put the Bible first, and any traditions and rituals come in behind that. You say, well, give me an example, Pastor, of a tradition and ritual, okay? And look, the list I'm going to give you aren't things I'm looking to change, necessarily. All right. Some of them in time, maybe, I don't know, but most of them know. For instance, where in the Bible does it say that you have to wear a suit and tie to church? I'm waiting for someone to stand up and read me the book, chapter and verse. Tie dye. There you go. Where in the Bible does it say that you have to have a Sunday school hour? That was started by D.L. Moody, not Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm not looking to get rid of our Sunday school hour. I love the Sunday school program. And I'm not planning on taking my suit jacket off. I plan on wearing a suit jacket for the foreseeable future. I don't see a time where I take it off. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous, okay? Where does the Bible say that we have to sing out of the hymnal every song every week? It, it, It doesn't. But there are Baptist churches that if the pastor were to come in and say, okay, we're going to start singing choruses along with the hymnal. Ooh, pastor, you can't change that. Well, why not? Because we as Baptists, I'm I'm not talking about you all, I'm talking about Baptists as a whole. We worship our traditions too. We do. I've been a Baptist for 34 years. We do. And we have to be willing to say, We've got to adjust the way the church is run 
to reach those around us as long as we're not sinning in the process. What did Paul say? He said, I became all things to all men, yet without sin. Yet without sin. While I'm on this, Sunday is our old-fashioned Sunday. We're going to be rolling that screen up right there. Boop, it's going to go away. And um, we're going to be decorating the auditorium beginning tomorrow and all kinds of different stuff. And, and I'm going to come in dressed different. Um, the staff's going to come in dressed different. We're, we're going to, you know, turn back, the, turn back the clock a little bit. And we're going to sing songs like, Give Me That Old Time Religion. And, uh, you know, the Bible says something about, Give Me the Old Paths. Well, a lot of people think that means, Give Me the Lee Robertson, Jack Hiles era. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. Um, I'm not going to keep this church in the 1990s because the culture out there isn't the 1990s. Is everybody okay tonight? Everybody okay? We need to reach people where they are. Now, we don't need to bring a drum set in the building, and we don't need the pastor to spike his hair, the three hairs he has left. Okay? Uh, uh, we don't need to look, look like the world in a sinful way. We don't need to look like the world in any way, but we can reach the world. We can reach the world and stay true to the scriptures and not feel like we've got to be stuck to some Baptist traditionalism. Amen. Amen. Nod your head up and down if you agree with that. Okay. Some of you are skeptically very nodding your head up and down. Okay. Um, But they were dealing with traditionalism here in this passage because people were worshiping the laws of the Torah, and totally missing the point of the Torah. The Torah, the Old Testament, was meant to show them that they're sinners. They fall short and they need a Messiah. The Messiah had come and they had neglected to answer that. Look how Paul addresses this, chapter 2, verse 13. He's addressing the those uh, who are teaching and preaching the Torah. Now, prior to me reading this, let me, let me again remind you what the Judaism crowd was trying to tell this Gentile church. That in order to become... True believers, they had to be circumcised. Their males had to be circumcised in the flesh. They had to observe the Sabbath day and they had to eat meat that was kosher. All right. And so Paul's going to address all three of those things here. He's taking a shot at this and saying, no, put your focus on Christ. Put your focus on Christ, not the Old Testament law. Look at verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What was he saying here? That that the punishments of the Torah were nailed to the cross. Jesus suffered those for us. The idea that you've got to be circumcised is a work of the flesh. No, no, no. Christ died on the cross. That's done. Look down with me at uh, verse number 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. 
So, hey, don't let anybody come in and try to tell you that the meat you're eating is wrong, the drink you're drinking is wrong, uh, uh, that uh, you're not observing the Sabbath, uh, or, or any of that type of stuff. Don't let anybody come in here and mislead you. Look down to verse number 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, why is the living in the world are ye subject to ceremonies, to ceremonialism, to ordinances? Why do you, why would you be subject to following some set of ceremonies out of the Old Testament when Christ completed all those in his death, burial, and resurrection? So he's encouraging them, don't give in to the pressure of traditionalism. Letter B, polytheism. Polytheism. Now, polytheism, that word poly means many. Theism means God. So polytheism would be many gods, the worship of many gods. So we've talked about, uh, the, the, the religious pressures of that day. Hold up the Old Testament law. Convert to Judaism. What was the social pressures of that day? Well, it was to worship many gods. Look at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in, in it, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new... Look, the last half deals with this. Or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days or of the new moon. That's what I want you to get for uh, the polytheism side of it. Look down at verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary uh, humility and worshiping of angels, introducing into those things uh, which uh, he hath not seen, vainly puffed uh, up uh, uh, by his uh, fleshly mind, and not holding, uh, uh, holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having uh, nourishment together and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So the culture back then was, Hey, you go outside of town and there are all of these idols set up and you worship these different gods. And some of them were the gods of materialism and some of them were the gods of sexuality and some of them were the gods of, uh, of, uh, 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 of just various other religions. And hey, uh, you can add Jesus to your list of all the other gods. And look, you can believe in Jesus, but you need to also continue to worship these other gods. And, and Paul is reminding them, no, 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 your focus is on Christ. You don't need to worry about those. You've been saved from that. That's no more. And don't let the pressure of the culture drag you back in to paganism. I think it's fair to say here that just like uh, there was the worshiping of multiple gods... In the form of a stone uh, or piece of wood back then, we have polytheism present in our culture today. Just turn on the TV, and what you'll find is that people worship the God of sports, people worship the God of entertainment, people worship the God of sexual looseness, people worship the gods of drugs. You know what's behind an idol? Demons. You know why they used to worship idols in the New Testament? Not because it was fun to bow down to a piece of stone. They bowed down to a piece of stone because of the power of Satan that was behind the stone. Do you know why people bow down to entertainment? There is a satanic power behind a lot of that. Not all entertainment. There's clean, good entertainment. By the way, sports. I love sports. I've got favorite sports teams. I don't have a lot of time to watch sports. I'm just going to tell you the truth. 
There have been times in my life where I would indulge in and watch a lot of it. I am so busy now pastoring this church that I'll catch 15 minutes of a game here, 20 minutes of a game there. I just don't have time to watch sports. Occasionally I'll watch a full game if it's late at night and then I'll pay for it the next day. And then I'll regret it and and wish I hadn't done it. Uh, but uh, I'm just so busy, I really can't. You say, well, what are you busy doing? I'm busy serving the Lord Jesus Christ with my life. But there are people who bow down at the altar of sports. How about the altar of, of drugs, alcohol and prescription pills and street drugs? You think there aren't demons behind that stuff? How about the altar of, of, of sexual looseness? You think there aren't demons behind all the pornography that's consumed by America every day and all the illicit relationships and the premarital and extramarital sexual relationships? You think there aren't demons behind those things? Of course there are. Now, if you're saved, you're oppressed, not possessed. But if you're lost, you can be possessed by some of these demons. And so we live in a day of polytheism. How about the worshiping of one's self? Well, that one's everywhere. That one's everywhere. And if we're honest, some of us struggle with that sometimes, do we not? Where we want to worship ourselves. So the cultural enemies that wanted compromise, they wanted to get in and compromise the Christians in the church. And so Paul said, keep your guard up. And the way you do that is by focusing on Christ. Next notice, number six, the essence of the Christian's resurrected life. The essence of the Christian's resurrected life. Okay, pastor, we've talked about the theory of the Christian life. Uh, uh, pastor, or to the one who wrote the book here, Paul, what does the Christian life look like? Make it practical for me, okay? Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. First, look at uh, chapter 3, verse number 1. And the reason why I chose the wording there, the essence of the Christian's resurrected life, we think about Christ being resurrected from the dead, right? What day do we celebrate that on? I got you guys daydreaming. When do we celebrate the resurrection of Christ? Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, right? Um, And we say, who has risen? We would all say, Christ. Do you know, technically, if you're saved, you can say that you've risen? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, okay, so what's been risen? What died when Adam sinned? His soul. What comes alive when we get saved? Our soul. We're risen with Christ, right? Uh, uh, Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So we've been risen with Christ. So what does this resurrected life look like? Letter A, a new humanity. A A new humanity. Let me give you several thoughts below this. Notice first our affection, our affection. Look at uh, verse 2. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Set your affection on a new car. Is that what it says with the mark? Set your affection on a new living room set. Set your affection on a career advancement. Set your affection on a new purse or a new gadget. Set your affection on things above. Why? Because we know that one day this earth is going to melt with a fervent heat. And you don't take any of it with you, right? We all know this. 
So we're to set our affection on things above. Does that mean that we're supposed to live daydreaming about heaven? That's not what that means. We're to to set our affection on on accruing things above. Accruing things above. Um, Which is a smarter way to earn your paycheck? Keeping all of it or setting some aside into a retirement account? How many vote for the latter? Setting some aside in retirement. How many believe that's the better way to go about, say, a 25-year-old, start setting money aside in a retirement account, right? Most 25-year-olds are not thinking about retiring. They're thinking about, how can I spend this money today? Thank you. Um, um, Now, I want you to think about this, Christian. Your retirement is in heaven. And your time is your investment tool. Are you setting time aside to invest in the retirement account of heaven? Um, how old does, do most people retire in, um, in 2018? What, what's the average age? John? 66, okay. And how old does the average male live? Anybody know? Seen any recent studies? 78 to 80? Okay, when you take out all the deaths of babies and people under 20, once you get up to a certain number, you take all those out of the average. Once you get to 75, there's a good chance you're, you're probably going to live to 80. But 75 to 80, somewhere in there. So you retire at 66, you live to 80. And you work your whole life to put all this money away so you can have 14 years of retirement. And then you die. And you go to heaven forever. And you work, 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 work for 14 years of retirement, and then you get to heaven and you're bankrupt. The golden years. Heaven, right? Those 14 years. Um, God says to set your affection on things above. All right, so our affection. Next, notice our alteration. Our alteration. If you're saved and you're, you're heavenly minded, Meaning you have your thought process on, uh, on heaven. And all of your decision making comes back to heaven. Um, then um, that's going to change some things, alter some things about the way you live. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. I, I love how blunt Paul could be. For ye are dead. Oh, I'm dead? For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, this is speaking about those that have their affection on things above. They're dead to self. They're hid in Christ. They're, they, they have the mind of Christ going back to Philippians. They're living the life Christ wants them to live. They're be- bearing their cross or taking up their cross and following Him. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then ye shall also appear with Him in glory, mortify, kill, slay, Murder, get rid of, destroy, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. What's it talking about? What are we slaying? What are we getting rid of? Well, um, some bad habits that came along with living by the flesh. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things uh, sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in, uh, in the which ye, uh, ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now uh, ye also put off all these, anger, 
wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So Paul here is saying, well, keep, let's keep reading here. So those are the things we're supposed to get rid of, we're to mortify, but then there are some things we're to replace them with. It's not good enough just to get rid of the old habits. God wants us to replace them with some new habits. Look at verse 11. Uh, or rather, verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him uh, uh, that created him, uh, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against, uh, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfection. So if you are thinking heavenly minded, then your goal is to get rid of the fornication and the uncleanness and uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the lifestyle, the disobedience, the anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, the filthy mouth. What is the filthy mouth? Well, that's cussing, obviously. Uh, that's uh, complaining. That's running down other people. That's gossiping. That's slandering. That's anything other than speaking the truth in love. The Bible says that if you're saved, you're to put that away from you, and then you're to put on uh, uh, the love of Christ, and you're to put on uh, these other things. So uh, our alteration. Next notice, our admonishment. Our admonishment. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are careful in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That word admonishing means to encourage, to lift up, to pick up, to help along. Uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So uh, uh, we see here that as we are uh, resurrected with Christ, we're living a resurrected uh, life in Christ, the essence of that is a new humanity. But then Paul gets super, super practical, and he addresses in chapter, the latter half of chapter 3, a new household. A new household. Now, let me set for you, if I could, the cultural norm for back then. This was the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, it was patriarchal to the max. The man of the home was the ruler of his castle. He could pick up and put down whoever he wanted. He could treat everyone in that house like they were scum. He could step on the neck of anyone he wanted at any time. If you weren't the way, and I'm not talking about the Bible here, I'm talking about the Roman culture. If as a woman you were the wife and you weren't performing up to par for what that man wanted out of a wife... Out with you, bring in a new one. Children were looked at as slaves and objects to be stepped on and used. And they had slaves. And those slaves were treated like property, not like human beings. So, you need to understand the culture back then to understand what Paul is getting at here. Paul is going to take the same home structure that they had. Leading husband, the large and in charge 
husband and, and, and dad and slave owner and then the, the, the meek and, and squashed and oppressed woman and children and slave, he's going to take those different titles and he's going to rework this anew around Christ. So a new household, a new household. And so Paul was not writing this letter to 2018 Christians in the U.S. of A. He was writing this letter when slavery was already permitted by Roman law. And he's not endorsing slavery. He's telling them because it is accepted in the culture, this is how it needs to be regulated. Okay, So no uh, people want to take the Bible to task about slavery and say it endorses slavery. No one here, nowhere in here is it endorsing slavery. It is actually helping make life better for those who are living in an already oppressed system. So let's look here uh, first. Uh, the structure of the home, the structure of the home. Now, Sunday evening, I preached a, uh, a very strong sermon entitled, Will the Real Men Please Stand Up? And if that's the only sermon that you've ever heard Pastor Lejeune preach, you could have walked away with the impression that Pastor Lejeune is anti-woman. You could have walked away with that impression. Um, there were some sound bites probably in there that if I ever run for political office would sink me. I'm just going to guess that, okay? I'm too truthful to be a politician. I'm way too religious to ever run for political office. Have no desire to do it, uh, especially seeing what's going on right now with uh, the Supreme Court nominee, how they're, uh, in my opinion, they are, they are uh, going after him in a way that's just wrong, just wrong. But... Um, um, I'm not saying he didn't do any of the things accused. I'm just saying the method is quite fishy that they're using to go after him. And it's sad. But um, uh, anyway, you get the idea that I maybe am anti-female. I'm not anti-female at all. I'm not anti-female at all. God created women uh, for a specific reason. He made them in his image and his likeness just like he made the man. Women are equal to men in every way. But they have a different role than men. You understand Different does not mean lower or higher. God did not take Eve from Adam's foot. God did not take Eve from Adam's head. God took Eve from Adam's side, meaning she is his equal and she comes along and compliments him. However, you can be equal with someone and have a different role, and that role can complement the other role. And that's exactly what we have here. And so Paul is going to look at this patriarchal society, and he's going to talk about how this whole thing needs to be readjusted. So the structure of the home, look at chapter 3, verse number 18. It says there, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. I'll get to that in a minute. Look at this last part of the verse. As is fit in the Lord. So who's in charge of the home? The husband or the Lord? The Lord's in charge of the home. Okay, uh, let's continue here. Look at verse number uh, 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 number 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. So it's the children need to please Dad. No, the children need to please the Lord. He's in charge of the home. Look down with me uh, at the end of verse 22. 22 is talking about servants and masters. It says in the last two words, fearing God. They're not to do the work to please men. They're to do it to please God or because they fear God. So God's in charge of them as servants. Uh, look at verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Why? Because he's in charge of the home and not unto men. Look at verse 24. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve who? The Lord 
Christ, the Lord Christ. So uh, look at ch- uh, chapter four, verse one, the very end of it. Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven, a master in heaven. So uh, to uh, the, the, what is the structure of the home? Is it the patriarchal man who's uh, ruling over his wife and demanding of her what to do and, 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 and bossing the children around and treating them like trash? No, it's the Lord's in charge. The husband is to submit to the Lord. The wife is to submit to the husband. And the children are to submit to the mom and the dad. And the, uh, the servants are to follow what the master says. And the masters ought to treat the servants like they're humans, not property. And, and, and so you see a different structure here. Look here, the sentiment of the home. The sentiment of the home. Husbands and fathers, let's focus on that role first. They are to love. They are to love. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives. And be not bitter against them. Now, 18 talks about how the wife is to submit to her husband. But verse 19 does not say husbands rule over your wives. It says husbands love your wives. This is what we call a, a servant leader model. You are busy serving your wife. It makes her want to follow you. So serve her needs. Uh, connect with her emotionally. Communicate with her. Love her. And then, then you uh, get the idea of what the wife is to do. And that is to submit to the leadership of her husband. Why? Because the husband is loving her. Now, I love saying this here. And it's a challenge to me as it is to every husband in the room. So please listen to me. Sir, if your wife were as submissive to you as you are to God, how submissive would your wife be? It's easy to say, Ephesians 5.22, woman, submit! Hey, but don't forget verse 21. Submitting yourselves one another in the fear of God. You're to submit to God. And God's saying, hey, maybe she's not submitting to you because you're not submitting to me. So we got to know the roles here. If your wife sees a tender heart toward the Lord, she may just want to follow you that much more. Okay, so let's quickly uh, uh, tie this up here. Uh, Husbands and fathers are to love. Wives and mothers are to submit and protect. And then uh, children and servants are to obey, are to obey. Let me give you letter C and we'll wrap it up. A renewed humility, a renewed humility. Now, I'm going to just give you A, B and C really quick. I'm going to tell you uh, what letter C is and we'll, we'll, we'll shut it down. Letter A, our speech, our speech. It tells us in verse 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how, to, how, how ye ought to answer every man. Okay, our steps, our steps. Verse 5, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. And then let her see our sympathy, our sympathy. Look at verse number 9. This is really cool. While Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Now, I want you to picture this, because you have a man, I believe his name is Aristarchus, yes, Aristarchus, he comes back from prison, and he has two letters in his hand. He has the the Church of Colossae letter he's going to read. He has another letter he's hiding behind his back, and this one's to, uh, this one's to Onesimus. Uh, or rather, ra- rather, it's to Philemon. I'm sorry, it's to Philemon. And 
So he's reading the letter to the church and telling them, hey, you need to treat slaves with respect. He gets down to the end and he says, let me give you a practical example. I have behind the curtain Onesimus. You all know Onesimus' story. Go read Philemon. Onesimus was the scoundrel that stole from Philemon and got thrown in prison for it. And then got saved in prison with Paul. And uh, uh, here you have Aristarchus coming back with Onesimus with him. And after he gets to reading the, the letter uh, uh, of Colossians, he most likely pulls out the letter to Philemon and says, By the way, here you go, buddy. You need to accept Onesimus back. Let's put some feet to our living. Let's take the truth and let's live it. So you have a culture here that is uh, uh, sinful. It's all around us, and it's pressuring us to do wrong. Commercialism is constantly being flaunted in our face. The love of money is constantly being flaunted in our face. Uh, sin is constantly being pushed on us. We've got to choose to not cave to the pressure. And how do you do that? By focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, let's be committed to do that tonight. Let's stand to be dismissed.